All righty. So we're going to go ahead and get started. So if you could make your way back to your seats. And so like uh, John Stevenson has already said, uh, my name is Jordan Washington. I'm one of the Timothys here at Central Hope along with uh, Blake Reap, uh, getting theologically trained uh, to seek ordination uh, in our denomination. And so here at Central Hope, uh, from time to time, uh, they allow the Timothys to have the mic uh, for good, bad, or ill. And so we'll see uh, which one that proves to be this morning. And so today we're going to be talking about the forgotten God, uh, the Holy Spirit. And so this will not be an academic study of the Holy Spirit, so we're not going to be talking about languages and, and things like that. But specifically, we're going to be talking about the power of God, the power of God. And so many professing Christians these days do not speak about the power of God because it's foreign to them. The power of God has largely been taken out of much of American ministry. Now it is believed that if we were to reach the lost, it is about the lights, the production, the performance, having the greatest speakers occupy the stage or the most attractive church members on our websites. It is about making sure that the world thinks that the church is modern, not archaic, progressive, not traditional, and relevant, not outdated. The success of the mission of the church is contingent upon how fun and in tune with the culture we can make the church appear to be. And so much of the supernatural aspects of the Christian religion has all but been forgotten. I've even heard the claim made that if America gets taken over by secularism, then the gospel will not advance in other parts of the world. And this is widely believed because of the liberties that America has enjoyed for centuries, the finances that we have over here that other parts of the world do not possess. But dear friends, do you know what is happening in China right now? The persecution that occurs there. And the gospel rolls on triumphant. The church in China is not struggling. They are growing in the midst of persecution. Do you know what's happening in Cuba, in Afghanistan? God is triumphant in these parts of the world, and God's people are triumphant in these parts of the world. If nothing else, this should indicate to us that God is not in need of America's money to accomplish his plans in the world. So as we will see, the mission of the church is completed and is successful because of the power of God alone. Now as a preface, I'm sure everyone has some notion of the Holy Spirit and, and who he is. Uh, over the last 30 years, he's gotten a lot of press and media attention in a, from a variety of different places. Sadly, much of what is widely believed about the Holy Spirit is not only misinformed, but in a lot of cases, unbiblical. Uh, the Holy Spirit, much like other members of the Trinity, is viewed as genie in a bottle, a force that exists to do the bidding of men, and it that exists to aid man in his endeavors and dreams. Popular preachers and teachers like Jen Johnson of Bethel Church have outright said that they view uh, the Holy Spirit like Genie from Aladdin. And if you're familiar with the movie Aladdin, you know that Genie, played by Robin Williams, is 
a mystical force that is trapped inside of a lamp. And upon being summoned, he is then enslaved to the owner of that lamp. This is Jim Johnson's view of the Holy Spirit, apparently. Among similar leaders like Bill Johnson, Benny Hinn, Stephen Furtick, Michael Todd, Michael Koulianos, Kenneth Copeland, and Todd White, we see the same belief of the Spirit, that the Spirit is there to do the bidding of man. But these are obvious examples of the bad theology that, that can arise about God, the Holy Spirit. There are more subtle forms of uh, error that are widespread among the language of uh, worship pastors in some cases. Consider certain phrases that are, that are popular and oftentimes employed from Sunday to Sunday. Holy Spirit, we welcome you in this place. We're in the presence of the Lord in this place. Do you feel the Spirit moving in this place? Right, so underlying these statements is a belief that the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force that must be summoned or conjured up by the pleas of the people. This belief resembles much more the ideas of pagan idol worship of a distant deity that, is to be, that has to be manipulated to being near to us than the God of the Bible. And yet this kind of a phraseology is prevalent across America Sunday to Sunday. And so just as a sidebar, uh, one of the names of God that we see in the Bible is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so do you know that every Christian has the Holy Spirit with him, always, right? You do not have to ask him to be near to you. You do not have to invite him into your space, for God is with us. God is omnipresent. He is always with his church. He's not need an invitation from us to be near to us. Again, underlying these statements is almost the, the idea that the one who made the ear can himself not hear. And so we have to repeatedly ask the Holy Spirit to come to be near to us. Because if we don't repeatedly ask the Holy Spirit to be near to us, he somehow isn't there. To double down on the insult paid to the Holy Spirit, his work in the salvation of man has been minimized, if not outright discarded. Take, for example, the remarks that are made to newly baptized members of the church. For many newly baptized people, youths especially, uh, they are met with words like, congratulations, so proud of you, best decision you could make, great job. Things that you would say to a person who just earned a job promotion, who just earned their high school diploma, who owned your scholarship to university, who earned a college degree, who earned a master's degree, you get the picture, right? These types of things are said to people who earn things, and yet this is the kind of language that we say to newly baptized members. In our current climate, the Holy Spirit is either misrepresented in the hysteria of revivalism, which is seen and felt at big youth rallies and young adult gatherings, portrayed as genie enslaved to the whims of the people, or he is absent altogether in the lives and thoughts of Christian folk. However, the Bible paints a very clear picture of the divine person. 
The Bible not only mentions him, but gives him a premier spot alongside the father and the son in the unfolding drama that is redemptive history. And so this morning, we will not engage in what the Bible has to say about spiritual gifts, nor miraculous gifts, nor the Spirit's work in sanctification. Today, our focus will be on what Jesus has to say to the great Pharisee Nicodemus in John chapter 3, namely the monergistic work of the Holy Spirit in the salvation of sinners. And so the reason this is so vitally important is for the simple reason that if we do not have a biblical understanding of how men are saved, excuse me, if we do not have a biblical understanding of how men are saved, we will manufacture ways for them to be saved. If we wrongly diagnose the disease that plagues our fallen world, then we will provide the wrong solutions. We will invent ways to make things as we think they ought to be. A modern day example of this is the sinner's prayer. Based on an unbiblical understanding of Romans 10.9, this method is employed all over the states to get people saved. But Romans 10.9 is not about having the courage to walk down an aisle in front of your loving parents and in front of a lot of nice middle-class Christian folk and say that you believe in Jesus. Romans 10.9 is about making a profession of faith in the face of certain and absolute death. Paul is writing to Christians in Rome under Emperor Nero, who was no friend of Christians. And in Roman culture at this time, the emperor was seen as a deity himself. And so it was required of the citizens of Rome to pay homage to Caesar, to say that Caesar is Lord. However, you understand that a Christian cannot say that anyone is Lord except for Jesus. And so when Paul is writing in Romans 10.9, he is talking and giving encouragement to Christians who will absolutely die for their faith in Jesus Christ. He is not talking about a 21st century kid walking down an aisle standing in front of a bunch of people who love him and want the best for him and having the courage to say that he believes in Jesus. He's talking to people who will absolutely face death for saying they believe in Jesus. And so let us begin our examination of John chapter three and the riches that the Lord has for us there. And so beginning in verse one, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said this to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you know not where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And so when I first began doing ministry at Henderson State's campus, I once came to a friend very uh, discouraged and confused. 
Uh, I'd been out on Henderson State's campus sharing the gospel with people, and one of the things that I'd found is that people didn't care. They either didn't care or they actually became enraged that I would ever share such a preposterous message with them. And so I went to my friend. I was young. I knew little theology. The extent of what I knew was basically that man was sinful, God was holy, we deserved hell, and if you wanted to avoid this faith, that you just needed to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Again, I was confused because I could not perceive why so many people that I engaged with could care so little about this message. I was, I was discouraged because I had never read something as glorious in my life as what is contained in Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so why was this message so magnificent to me and so worthless to others? And this I found to be the case amongst non-Christians, obviously, and then even amongst people who claim to profess the blessed faith. But Romans 3.11 says that there is no one who understands and no one who seeks after God. In my inquiry with my friend, he actually never answered my question. He just merely looked at me and said, that is a good question. And so I was left without an answer to why it was that so many people did not respond to this message that I had come to love. So the Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthian church, wrote this. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He goes on to say in verse 22 and 23, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Today we are no different. We ask to see wondrous signs and seek after vain philosophies and call ourselves wise. Martin Hingle, in his little volume called Crucifixion, through historical research, further expounds the meaning of crucifixion in the Greek-speaking world. He writes, For men of the ancient world, Greeks, Romans, barbarians, and Jews, the cross was not a matter of indifference, just any kind of death. It was an utterly offensive affair, obscene in the original sense of the word. He goes on to write, The Christian faith was seen as a pernicious superstition, a sick delusion, a senseless and crazy superstition, a perverse and extravagant superstition. They, being Christians, worship a criminal and his cross. This is how people viewed the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in the first century in the Roman and Greek-speaking world. And dear friends, I'm sorry to say, but not much has changed 2,000 years later. The amount of scoffers are endless in the world in which we live in. But the glaring question still remains. How does anyone move from seeing the cross as some ridiculous thing, a ridiculous story that was conjured up by a few of his followers and spread across Rome like madness, like the plague, to seeing the cross as something magnificent and glorious? How do any of us come to know the cross as the wisdom of God, 
How does anyone come to believe that this Jew from Nazareth is the savior of the world? How does a person come to see the pages of scripture, in the pages of scripture, that this Jew hanging on a tree is God incarnate? To double down on this, the crucifixion is not itself something that is unique. It was a criminal's death. It wasn't unique just to Jesus. They crucified lots of criminals. I mean, even in the pages of scripture, Jesus is hanging between two other criminals. So crucifixion was not anything unique. Nor is it unique to religious belief. In fact, in Greek mythology, the gods incorporated a form of crucifixion as a means of making a mockery out of the one that is crucified. So crucifixion is not anything that is unique to the Bible story. And so in the world in which Paul is writing, in the world in which we live today, crucifixion is not anything unique. So how does a person come to see the cross of Jesus Christ specifically as something special, as something magnificent? To answer this question, we have to turn to our text for the Lord Jesus has our answer contained in John 3. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus and immediately says what many probably feel would be a valid address for the Lord Jesus. Nicodemus calls Jesus rabbi, which means teacher. This is a, this is a noble profession and a noble title uh, to be bestowed upon an individual. But this actually reveals something about Nicodemus that Jesus immediately responds to. Nicodemus has a need. And so Jesus immediately says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I'm sure Nicodemus thought that he was making an accurate assessment about who Jesus was, that he was a teacher that was come from God, that was performing miracles and signs in front of the people. But the truth is, Nicodemus had actually totally missed Jesus' true identity and his purpose. So every man, brothers and sisters, every woman, every child that is an unbeliever, according to the page of scripture, is blind, right? They cannot see the kingdom of God, meaning they cannot comprehend it. They are unaware that the one true living God has ushered in his kingdom in real time and space. Just as Nicodemus has not yet seen the reality that Jesus is more than a great teacher doing miracles, so too many in our world are blind to the truth of Jesus. Jesus here is telling Nicodemus of his need. Nicodemus needs to be born again. Then Nicodemus responds in the way that most of us would probably respond today if someone were to tell us this. How can a man be born when he is old? But Jesus doesn't flinch at this point. Instead of answering Nicodemus' question, he actually doubles down on his previously starting declaration. Truly, truly, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So not only can a person not see the kingdom of God unless he is born again, they can't enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again either. That which is born of the flesh is of the flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is the Spirit. It says, do not be amazed that I said you must be born again. Again, the Bible is clear, clearer than the bluest diving spot in the ocean. The natural born man has a dilemma, a problem that no man can solve. Entrance into the kingdom of God cannot be manipulated by anyone. Salvation cannot be popishly bestowed upon our friends, our loved ones, It cannot be manipulated by the preacher, the youth counselor, the campus minister, nor the camp counselor. 
Salvation is a sovereign work of God, the Holy Spirit. The greatest miracle known to man is not someone being healed of cancer, even though that is quite miraculous indeed. The greatest miracle is that any sinner born at enmity with God, walking in darkness, unable to find his way, comes to know Jesus. And I don't mean know Jesus in some abstract kind of way. I mean know Jesus the way so many people know their Enneagram. I mean knowing Jesus the way so many people know their favorite social media influencer. This type of knowledge of Jesus comes by way of the Holy Spirit. Again, the Bible does not paint humankind in a very nice way. Right? If, if, if you've read all that the Bible has to say, or not even all of it, even, even just a little bit of what the Bible has to say about fallen man's condition, it is not a pretty picture. Genesis 6-5 sums it up quite well. Every intent of the thought of man's heart is only evil continually. These are all encompassing words. The natural man only does sin That which is flesh is of the flesh. Ephesians 2, verse 1, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he reminds them of a truth that they might have forgotten, that they were once dead in their sins and trespasses, following after the course of this world, being obedient to the prince of the power of the air, Sons of disobedience deserving wrath. Natural man has a serious dilemma. And the Bible also gives us great encouragement. So we started this journey by, again, asking the question, how does someone move from this place of utter darkness and despair into the place of glory and richness? And the answer that we see, that we have found in John chapter 3, is the power of God. You see, this is actually the great confidence for the Christian. And I don't mean the Christian who does the preaching, the evangelist, the missionary. I mean the Christian in everyday life. The Christian who's laboring to make disciples of all nations, of peoples, tribes, and tongues. The great confidence that you have in sharing the gospel that people will believe is not how eloquently you share the gospel with that person. Because if you're anything like me, in your attempts to share the gospel with people, you've probably butchered it a time or two or 10. You've messed it up. You've left out key details that should have been shared. And ultimately, The salvation of another person is not contingent upon how awesome you are. This is a great encouragement to us in the church. This is the great hope that we have that people will be saved. It's the power of God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 31, says this. The work of God's spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery enlightening our minds to the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, he doth persuade us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. 
is the Holy Spirit that converts a person. Is the Holy Spirit that enables a person to see that the cross is not foolish, but it is the wisdom of God. That the cross is not some obscene thing to be ridiculed, but it is the power of God to save. It is the Holy Spirit that does this work. In this answer to the Shorter Catechism question number 31, it talks about uh, convincing us of our sin and misery. One thing that is also quite natural to man is that you see that they're actually willing to admit that they're broken and that they make mistakes, right? If, if, if you're a parent, if you've ever spent any time around kids, uh, do you remember those times of trying to convince uh, your child or someone else's child that they should apologize for some grievance that they have done to someone else? One thing that happens is once that child figures out that if I just give this apology, I get to go back and play, they offer up that apology rather quickly, even though they feel no remorse for the crime that they've committed. It is the same way for the natural man. He is quite willing to offer up an apology if he thinks it'll help him escape some consequence. But this is not what the Bible calls repentance. True repentance involves remorse over the crime, not the consequence that comes because of the crime. And this is a work of the Holy Spirit. When a person feels real contrition, real remorse over their sin, that is a work of the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is actually found in Luke chapter seven, beginning in verse 36. And you're probably familiar with this story, but it's the sinful woman who anoints Jesus' feet. And so in this story, Jesus is having dinner with some of the Pharisees, as, you know, as was his custom. They always like to invite him over to you know, try to entrap him and you know, do all this you know, stuff. And what happens here is that the sinful woman is crying and she is wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. And the Pharisees begin to grumble amongst themselves, which they also were quite good at. And they say, if this man actually was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him right now. And then Jesus reclines back, knowing their thoughts, and he leans over and says, Peter, I have something to tell you. He's like, come here. I have something to tell you. And he says, do you see this woman, Peter? He's like, yeah. And he says to Peter, you did not anoint me when I came into your house. But this woman has not ceased to anoint me since she came in. You didn't give me water to drink, but she has continually wet my feet with her tears. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has not ceased from pouring this fragrant oil on my feet. And then he goes and he asks him, he tells him a parable. He says, there are two debtors. Right, one owed, well, I don't know what a denarii is. I don't know if you know what a denarii is. So we'll, we'll use American money for the sake of clarity, right? So one owes $1,000, another owes 100. Well, let's spice it up. One owes half a million dollars. One owes $500. Two debtors. They both go 
to the man who they owe this money to and they tell him they can't pay. They can't pay back the debt that they owe. And the collector says, well, I'll forgive both of them. Right? Wipes it clean. And then Jesus asks Peter, which one of these people do you think will love this collector more? And Peter rightly says, well, the one who owed him the most money, obviously. And Jesus says, same with this woman here. He who has been forgiven little loves little. This story is a beautiful picture of how we are to come to Jesus. Humbled over our sin, over our crimes, over what we have done, the debt that we owe. Beautiful picture of the humility of a person under conviction of the Holy Spirit. Not a person seeking just to avoid consequences, but a person who loves Jesus because she knows who Jesus is and what he's done for her. The Pilgrim's Progress is, is one of my favorite books ever and arguably one of the greatest books ever written. But in the, book, in the beginning of this book, the character named Pilgrim reads in this book with a capital B, right? It's, it's the Bible. He reads in this book a lot of distressing words, right? Things that really uh, upset him. And he contains himself as long as he possibly can. He goes home, he spends time with his family. They can tell something's wrong with him. He's sweating, he goes to sleep, he wakes up the next morning and he feels worse. He's even more bothered after he woke up the next morning. Wife's asking him what's wrong, kids are asking him what's wrong. He doesn't have an answer for him. He, originally, he eventually encounters this character named Evangelist, right? And we all, we all know what that, what that person does. But Evangelist points him to the direction where he can relieve himself of his burden. And immediately, Pilgrim breaks out into a sprint and is running for this gate where the cross is. And in the story, John Bunyan talks about how the wife is running after this man, his children are running after him, his neighbors are all running after him, and they're all trying to convince him not to leave. They're all trying to convince him that it's, that it's a delusion, that it's fake, that he has nothing to worry about. But what Pilgrim does is he puts his fingers in his ears and he says, life, life, eternal life. And he runs as hard as he can to the cross. This is an example, a picture of a person under conviction of the Holy Spirit. And Spirit works in a variety of different ways on different people. But ultimately, when a person is convicted of their sin, they are led to the feet of Jesus. They're led to place their trust in the only place where their trust can actually have hope. Not in themselves, right? Not in their good deeds. Not in that they've cared for the poor. Not in that they went to a Christian school once upon a time. Not that they got baptized one time in their life somewhere, right? Not that they prayed the sinner's prayer and the magic words saved them. No, the conviction of the Holy Spirit leads a person to the feet of Jesus, to trust in the person and work of Christ, to reconcile them to God. Again, what a beautiful picture we have in both the story of the sinful woman and the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress of what it looks like 
for a person to be led by the Holy Spirit to Christ. Jesus concludes his teaching by saying this, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from nor where it is going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. And so just as the wind blows where it wishes without the consultation of man, so too God works as he sees best. And again, one of the great hopes that we have is found in the church. The church is not man's invention. It wasn't just a group of people who, who decided, who got together and decided that this ecclesia, this gathering, this fellowship was just a good idea. The church is God's work. And so when you attend church, Sunday to Sunday, when you look around at the people that are amongst the congregation, you are seeing the work of God. You are seeing God at work in real time, in real space. And again, this is a great encouragement to us. Because if you're like me, you look at the news and you get upset. And if you have social media, you look at social media and you get more upset. But the Bible has great encouragement for us. That even while it seems like the world is growing ever darker, the people are getting ever crazier, that God is still at work. And we know this because of the church. We know this because across the world, people gather to sing the praises of Jesus. And so lastly, be encouraged that about this sovereign work of God. As we strive to be faithful and fulfill the great commission that Jesus has charged us to, to fulfill until he comes, we can be confident that no sinner, no matter how awful, no wretch, no matter how far gone, no criminal, no matter how heinous, is outside of the power of God. If God can save you, he can save anybody. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning uh, thankful uh, that you are sovereign and not us, that you are all-powerful where we are weak, and that ultimately the work of the church is your work, God. We are confident because you've promised that you will build your church, that as we continue to strive to be faithful according to your precepts set forth in the Bible, that you will save people, Lord, that you will bring them unto yourself through the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you hasten this work and that you hasten the day in which Jesus returns to make all things new to finally consummate the great kingdom of God, where all things will be perfect, where every tear will be wiped away and all of our remembrance of all this hardships and sufferings of this life will be remembered no more. We pray for encouragement to trust that you are still at work, God, in the midst of the darkness. For we know that you are because your Bible says that you are. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.